Hi, and welcome back to This Week in Voice, Season 3, Episode 9. Today is Thursday, November the 15th, 2018. My name is Bradley Metrock. I am CEO of a company called Score Publishing based in Nashville, Tennessee. Our sponsor for This Week in Voice through the end of the year is Castlingo. Castlingo is a product that Witlingo, a well-known voice user interface uh, company, voice skill designer uh, based in the D.C. area, has put together with Castlingo. Essentially, you can create your own Alexa skill just by using their mobile app and uploading snippets of audio. It's really cool. You need to check it out. Uh, we're going to link to it in the show notes. Um, a lot of the work that Ahmed and his team with Witlingo have done behind the product has been to pitch it toward publishers of different types. So you, if you have content that you are creating, releasing, publishing, this is a perfect fit to get that content into voice for the first time and get it into uh, Alexa ecosystems. But there's a lot more it can be used for as well. I highly encourage you to check it out. I'm going to be talking about it every show for, for here on out through the end of the year. Um, and take a look at it in the show notes. Uh, very cool. You'll be missing out if you don't uh, at least make yourself knowledgeable on what Castlingo is. This episode today, we were originally supposed to have Chuck LaPress and Elizabeth Barr of Bev Labs. Uh, there was a cancellation there. We will have them on at a later time. So we have gone with a special episode. I am very, very pleased to have the one and only modern Thomas Edison of our times, Brian Romley, join us on the show. Brian, say hello. Wow. Hello, Bradley, and thank you for that compliment. I'm not close to that, but love my wow. research. Yeah, Brian, you're, you're phenomenal. So I'll let you introduce yourself, but I will say the first episode of the Voice First Roundtable, which was me interviewing you for an hour plus, continues to be one of our top downloads on Voice First FM, uh, even with all the additional content we've come out with. Uh, people love hearing you and, and your thoughts. Uh, you're one of a kind. So share with us uh, what you do and what you're working on right now. Well, I'm humbled by the download numbers. And um, uh, I've been doing a lot of um, heads down research in my garage laboratory, just working on Proving what my theories have been about uh, human interactions with uh, AI technology, hacking together hardware and software, cobbling together different um, scenarios and how this stuff would work. And um, I guess the best thing I could say is building the ultimate personal assistant and uh, making proof of concept that these things are doable today with a piggy bank and uh, a garage and a, a few hundred raspberry pies at this point, but I don't have, uh, for a lot of reasons, I'm not using a lot of cloud-based computer systems to accomplish some of my tasks. So that's, that's been keeping me busy. <laughs> Excellent. And so for the uneducated, uh, the, you know, for the people who are not familiar with you, who are, you know, we've had a lot of newcomers to the network. It's grown. Uh, we're proud of that. Brian Romley is the creator of the term voice first. He coined it. Um, he's been out in front with a lot of this technology from the very beginning. When I created voice first FM and started using the hashtag voice first, Brian and I were talking before the show. 
I remember when I started using the term, the only per- other person was using it was the person who created it, and that's you. <laughs> and uh, and so it's come a long way, but a lot of credit goes to you uh, for being um, the person that you are uh, and the work that you're doing. So we have a special episode. We don't have any stories. I had stories. <laughs> I got rid of them. I don't care. I, uh, I want to know what the top three things on your mind are, Brian, as you look at voice first technology right now here as we're approaching the end of 2018 heading into 2019 you know we've had a lot of stories this year google has ramped up they've caught up to amazon uh in in every way except total market share you know smart speakers but in every in many meaningful ways they've caught up with technology if not you know maybe taking the lead Amazon has continued to make make uh, strides, of course, and uh, keep the foot on the gas pedal. Apple um, is still floundering around, but they're doing some interesting things. We've got Bixby and Viv. Uh, we've got Microsoft. We've got a whole raft of other things going on. Share with me, and maybe let's start with the first one. What is your biggest story, the biggest thing that's top of mind for you in voice first technology right this moment? Well, really great question. It's very hard to quantify at this point. Um, Internally, stuff that I've been doing uh, would make no sense to a lot of people listening to us right now. So I'd reserve from some of the things I would think are important, but just wouldn't make sense. But there are things that are important externally. and, And by the way, I stand on the shoulder of giants. I mean, I started in voice 80s, 1980s. You know, I made one of the very first voice cartridges for the Commodore series of computers and been with AI. I stand on the shoulders of people at Bell Laboratories, David Sarnoff Research Center, SRI International later on, which leads me to what I think is one of the the biggest um, stories right at this moment is Bixby and the uh, developer, open developer platform. And why is SRI International important? Because that gave us um, Adam N. Dag, who were the founders, principal founders of Siri, and later on Viv, and which is now being merged in to some degree, Bixby. The Bixby Developer Center is important in the fact that it's changing the paradigm of development and it's changing the paradigm of how we see the voice app. And in our earlier conversations with myself and um, uh, gosh, with Ahmed, uh, we've talked about this is the concept of the app is pretty much over. It just hasn't resonated uh, quickly enough through the tech community, but the arc of next two years the concept of downloading something in apps is, is going to be pretty much antiquated. Um, what we're doing with Bixby, Bixby Developer Center and the concept of Viv, and I wrote a, an article about Viv, hopefully we can put it in the show notes, about three years ago, and about why it's important. And the ultimate importance is self-replicating and self-writing AI code. Why that's important is the idea of coding is another thing that's going to be going away for a lot of voice applications. Um, 
it's not because I'm against coding. I'm a coder myself. It's I'm against rote reprodu- uh, things that can be you know reproduced by a machine in a much better way and to open and free humans to the creativity, which is a uniquely human trait and allow machines to do the rote uh, reproductive kind of things that you have to do over and over, like writing code. Um, we're seeing the beginnings of the Viv that I've read about in the patents and I've gotten to see indirectly through a lot of different uh, developments. So they introduced a ca- the idea of the capsule, um, which some people say is an app. It's a capsule because it's the building of what I call a neuron. A neuron is a memory of how to do something or of something, right? Very important to use the analogies to humans. I like that analogy. I didn't have any input on Viv's uh, nomenclature and terminology, but ultimately we're going to go to the terminology. It's more equivalent to humans. So 10 years from now, if you're in a time capsule, we'll be talking about neurons and AI, uh, real neuron uh, activity, not the neuronal activity that we're talking about in AI in the past. And there are concepts and actions uh, which are, um, you would say, are sort of like ways to uh, interact with inside the capsule. What's really powerful about the developer center is you don't have to predict, this is one of the uh, things, you don't have to predict the various ways that a user might invoke a particular capsule. You don't have to think about the ways that they might ask the questions uh, using different uh, series of lexiconical uh, interactions. It pretty much predicts that because we already have the AI. You know, Bradley, there's about a thousand ways. I'll pick a number. It really is nearly a thousand. Uh, You know, uh, empirically, it's a little less and a little more according to the subject matter. Ways to ask a question about something. And if you look at chaos theory, there's something called the strange attractor. And you can use the same sort of chaos math, which I've used, and I'm not using this by accident. I use chaos math or strange attractors to try to predict how humans are going to interact with AI. So I don't need to create general AI, which a lot of people think is the holy grail to solve the next user interface problem. Like you can't ever get voice AI as the next user interface because you can never predict how a human or what a human might ask. And that's utter bullshit. If you've studied human behavior, unfortunately, or fortunately, there is a predictability pattern to just about 97% of human activity day to day. In fact, we think about the same things we thought about yesterday to the 97th percentile. Uh, I forget exactly the number. I used to remember this off the top of my head, but I already have so many neurons. Uh, I think it's 170,000 thoughts per day. I could be wrong. You can go to some of my source material. I've published this stuff. A lot of empirical studies approve this. And then that means once you've understood what that human thinks about all the time during the day, you can restrict it down to guessing either it's that or it's something unique. And then use chaos math in it, giving away something here, uh, chaos math, strange attractors, try to figure out what people are going to say. So what is Bixby doing? Not exactly that. That's a direction I'm ultimately going to be going in, is uh, trying to predict how a user is going to interact with what is currently known as an app or a capsule. Why is that important? Well, if you've had experience with generation one, let's call that echo, uh, the very first echo onto where we are today, uh, Google products, uh, Apple products, you have to phrase the questions relatively 
within a range of things or the system simply doesn't understand what you're saying. That's not the voice first world that we want to live in. It's not the one I predict. It's not the revolution. It's the beginning of it. It's a, the, the echoes of the revolution of, of the voice interface. Once we are able as developers to put out a, an ability, a capsule concept in action, and we don't have to worry about the invocation ways that it's going to be enacted or the cascade of invocations that will lead to a particular event. Now, I, I dropped that in there. Now, let me not get too complex here. First, we've solved the problem about how do we get to have it turn on the lights, right? It sounds like a simple thing, but there's a lot of ways to say that, and there's a lot of different actions. And let's just say we've covered all that, and we've covered the way to ask for the weather, and we've covered a way you now maybe to order something or to buy something or get a pizza, things like that. But now there are going to be cascades of events because maybe we want the, um, the pizza to be paid for. Okay, those are two different events, pizza and then uh, the commerce aspect of it. Uh, maybe we want a delivery service specifically to be the one to deliver that pizza. So let's say a particular pizza operation has nine delivery services, which is quite common. If you go in the Bay Area, you see nine to 10 uh, iPads or Android tablets along their wall, each delivery service are trying to deal with, with the orders. Uh, anyway, um, let's just say you have a preferred delivery service. Maybe you want somebody to drone it to you or bicycle to you, uh, whatever. That's another action or that's another um, potential capsule. How do you link these things together? Under current paradigms, even with series sor- shortcuts, which you know I've been a, a, a big supporter of and Apple's unfortunately dropped the ball on promoting uh, and some of the more advanced capabilities of uh, the uh, Amazon platforms. Uh, And to some extent, Google, but Google is not really seeing some of these things the way uh, Amazon is. Uh, You can't put a series of these capsules or apps together to interact with each other. And there's a lot of reasons why. As you're monetizing, how do you spare, how do you spread out that monetization across the use cases of those different apps? If you have a per use monetization schedule, who gets a percentage? How do you do it? It's all a lot of the stuff. And that's why monetization is ultimately tied to this stuff. Uh, Bixby is developing the interactive platform that allows us to start building some of those capabilities. And it's kind of taking a longer view down the road. Not so important today, but much more important over the arc of the next two years uh, to be able to have that capability. So I believe the Bixby Developer Center and seeing Adam and Dag, who are, in fact, in my view, some of the most amazing minds working in the voice first revolution, finally come back up into the public uh, arena. It's made it uh, one of the stories of the year, in my view. So let's, <clears throat> let's go further down that road. So what even I have not had a chance to really dive in fully on their announcements, the Bixby, the Viv <clears throat> announcement. I saw the capsules. I saw you know, the whole thing about the code writes itself. And, you know, I made the joke last week, that's the type of coding uh, I need. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And so uh, that's appreciated. Um, But uh, the short-term picture here is that here we've got another thousand pound gorilla saying, you know, to Amazon and Google, wait a minute, don't waste all your energy beating each other up. I'm here to beat you both up. (laughs) And uh, it's, 
I made the comment on this week in voice last week. We had, uh, you know, Brett Kinsella and Pete Erickson on the show. Wonderful, wonderful uh, transmission. I love that show, Bradley. I, I appreciate that. Uh, sometimes we get it right. Uh, they were fantastic guests. Uh, but uh, uh, the Microsoft that we're going to get in 2019 is different now. The Apple <laughs> we're going to get in 2019 yeah. is different now. The Amazon, the Google, the Microsoft, the... Uh, uh, every company uh, doing anything, you know, and I, those are just some of the. Don't forget Hound. Hound is a really big player. Oh well, and then you've got yeah, then you've got uh, everything that SoundHound is doing, and, and Hound, and then you've got then you've got the whole ecosystem of you know companies that are serving different roles, um, you know, underneath. Everybody's 2019 changed, and I'm not smart enough to tell you how, uh, but you probably are. And that's really the next question for you is, so Samsung is hitting hard. What, how is it going to shape 2019? Um, what do you think we're going to see uh, Amazon and Google do in response? Are they going to make their system a little bit better uh, and more um, uh, along the lines of the capsules and, and, the, and the structure that Samsung's put together? Or how do you think they're going to respond? Wow. Uh, good question. And um, let me start it from this place. Uh, back in the 80s, I said that the a concept of the ambient interface of voice will be everywhere, but in no particular place at any particular time. And it sounds very airy and uh, new agey, but in reality, that's exactly where we're going. You know, the idea that we need to know arcane commands to interact with technology is not the way technology's promise was originally put together. We can go to Licklider and some of the early concepts of um, uh, the cybernetics revolution. The cybernetics revolution got displaced by the AI revolution, but the concepts of cybernetics, anybody listening to me wants to understand some of the future, understand what the cybernetics researchers were trying to do in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, but even in the 20s. And uh, I've written about this in a lot of private studies and cybernetics are going to start taking over and cybernetics are more work to get done. And so arcane commands, Samsung is much more like it or love it or hate it. It's much more than a phone company, much more than an Android company. And a lot of people in tech, it's Apple versus Samsung because of this Android versus iOS. I love iOS. I'm not a big Android fan on some levels, and I am on other levels, but I, I prefer to own Apple devices. That being said, Android is predominant around the world. It's a great platform, but it is not the Mac versus PC or the iOS versus Android argument. And Samsung, whether you're, you know, you want a South Korean company taking over the world, quote unquote, or an American company, let's put that aside. Samsung produces MRI machines, heart rate monitors, control of uh, highly technical equipment, obviously appliances, uh, from heavy appliances to smaller appliances. All of those devices, all those appliances, all those pieces of hardware have a user interface because they are computerized. Everything is computerized today. Everything has a computer in it. Uh, and this is not new news. This has been for a long time. And we have to learn these interfaces. How do you set the time on your microwave oven? 
there's a time button. Where 2018 is a time button on microwave oven. And then you watch people try to set time after uh, daylight savings time because it's got a computer, but it's not smart enough to know daylight savings time. And even then it might be voted out. California may not do it anymore. All kinds of things like this. So do you want every, every appliance, every new device you get, you have to learn the user interface? I say no. That's not the promise of technology simplifying your life. The promise of technology simplifying your life is to say, I have dirty athletic white socks. I'm putting it in my washer, make them nice and clean, and you walk away. That's it. And I literally said that way. And if my washer can make those socks do what they're supposed to do when they're done, I'm happy. Now, try that today. You have to go and you have to look at the front of your washer. Is it hot water? Is it cold water? How many different cycles? And you know what happens is something called feature bloat. Whenever companies that don't have the right direction, you know, as a, a good founder, a good management, they always do feature bloat. And I'm a technologist. I'm guilty of this also. What we do as technologists is we, kept, we keep impressing ourselves on how many features we can throw in so the kitchen sink gets bigger and bigger, right? So, Modern appliances are bloated with features that you and I will never use. Yet, we would possibly use if we knew that it existed, but there's so many features we just gave up trying to know those features. This happened with Windows products, Windows uh, Office products. Come on, how many icons and buttons do you need after a while? Simple simplicity. That's what Apple used to be known for, is this curation of simplicity. Love it or hate it. It did its job for quite a while. Don't know if we're there today, but what does the voice interface mean for that? Well, if, if you look at the billions of appliances that uh, Samsung's gonna, going to be producing with Bixby, and you're going to be talking to everything and having a conversation, and people find this hilarious are we not already having a conversation with our devices? What the conversation is, is computer ease. We forget that we're learning an arcane language to speak to our computers and our devices. And I'm even talking about the surfaces of our glass smartphones. There is an arcane language we're learning by tweaking and touching and pinching and zooming into apps. That is a learned behavior, albeit a reflective behavior a young child can learn very quickly. But all the same time, it is a, baby, it's a language we need to learn. There's a language of how we interact with an app. You know, it's not an arcane language. We're typing like a computer code, but albeit it's something we need to learn. We don't need to learn to talk if we've been blessed with vocal cords and the ability to string words together and put cohesive ideas together. That's the ultimate place where interfaces are going. It doesn't take a futurist to see this. It just takes somebody to rationally look at what the promise of technology is, and that is to simplify lives. We as nerds, I'm a nerd. We love diving in technology. If, if this was the 1940s and 50s, we'd be talking about spark plugs and cars and carburetors, and we'd be ripping apart our cars. And then once fuel injectors and sealed cars came around by the 1990s, we were like, oh, there's nothing to talk about anymore. Sure, people mod but they're not going to mod as much. They're not going to get in, in, involved as much. This is going to happen in a computer world. 
Bradley, it's happening right now in Silicon Valley. A lot of people, some of them I call voice-first deniers, are saying, Brian, the gadgets are going to go away. Yes, indeed they are. I didn't bring it about. I'm just the observer of this. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be using computers a heck of a lot more. And we're going to get a lot more stuff done. I don't know all the features of my washer machine or dryer, nor do I know all the features of my microwave oven when I did use one, uh, or my regular oven, or my dishwasher, or all the other devices and appliances that I'm going to purchase. But most importantly, a lot of people who work very technical medical instruments do not know the feature set. And they don't have the screen size, the resolution, the time to try to learn all those things. But what they do have is the ability to quiz the system. Now, some people might find this hilarious. Oh, Brian, don't have somebody with voice recognition of today talk to my heart blood pressure machine during surgery. Well, guess what? If, in fact, the accuracy is as good as it is being stated, which it is, in my view, past human comprehension level, right? A lot of AI under normal circumstances, not ideal circumstances, the recognition is better than human comprehension. I repeat that, right? So if you're in an operator room, operating room and you want somebody to make an adjustment that is going to save your life, at some point, if that comprehension is better and that machine can get to the menu and the execution of what needs to get done faster, do you want somebody to press a whole lot of levers to get there? Or do you want one single command to powerfully get to that point? Well, to that, so, and to that point, um, I remember reading an article, this is somewhat recent, about how um, AI has already gotten to the point where it can diagnose melanoma standard deviations better than doctors can. Bradley, you bring up a great point. Anybody listening to our voice, both Bradley and I are uh, very close to this. If you don't download a melanoma app, I mean everybody, and start taking pictures, you're insane. It's, a, it's one of the fastest growing cancers on the planet. Uh, the changes of uh, the borders and the colors are extremely important, and they are vastly overlooked in early stages. Vastly overlooked. And AI is so much better at diagnosing it. Not sure. because humans are infallible, because humans built the AI. We're not taking away we're not taking away the expertise, really. See, if you had a if you had a guy or a gal sitting in front of thousands of slides of melanoma images or biopsies or whatever you may have you MRIs, uh, if it's tumor mass, they are going to slip up sooner or later. What you want is somebody to do the rote work, the work that is drudgery to humans. Humans are machine and tool builders. That's all we are. That's all we've ever been. We're emotional creatures that build machines and tools. If you want to distill us down to our essence. And we don't get, no generation has ever got caught up in the tool forever. They let go of the tool, right? At one time when the hammer was so enamored, I'm sure there were a lot of nerds that got into all different hammer sizes and shapes and we spent time proselytizing about and probably blogs written about and we hope that we will forever make hammers you know and, and get into it we're moving past that element of the computer age and it's that's why it's so hard for people and that's why the old wars of apple against you know uh, microsoft and uh, ios against android it's over you know i was part of that i used to have those wars 
Now it's more about what are we going to do with these tools that we've made? Well, and that's a good way to dovetail into, uh, I guess I'll call this uh, story number two. And I'll ask you, you know, for the second, you know, I want to get what's on your top of mind. But I definitely want to ask, just sort of dovetailing off of what you just talked about, I want to ask specifically about your thoughts on Amazon. Yeah. So Amazon sits at a place right now where they're watching Samsung, you know, roll out this entirely new paradigm. Because that's what it is. It's a new paradigm. It's, it's very different than what Amazon has rolled out. Indeed. Uh, in, in a lot of different, in a lot of important ways. So Amazon is sitting there. They have invested uh, incredible amounts into uh, increasing the number, uh, driving the numbers of Alexa skills, driving the numbers of smart speakers. Um, they've wanted to win this quantitative uh, you know, they wanted to win on the uh, the battlefield of of the metrics, and and they've done that. So, how do they evolve? Do they even try? Um, do they just let Samsung go off and do their own thing? Um, because the story, one story of twenty nineteen is going to be all these same companies who have flocked to the Alexa ecosystem who have developed a lot of skills, who have built businesses out of either creating tools for Alexa developers or have become an Alexa developer themselves, they're going to look over here at Samsung and they're going to say, where is our time better spent? So I guess my question is, you know, given everything you just said, what do you think Amazon is going to do? What do they need to do as that next step, you don't need to lay out the whole roadmap, but what's, sure. that, what's that next step they need to do in response to what's going on? Wonderful question, Bradley. Um, well, let, let's start with the first uh, order of business here. Uh, 2016, I wrote an article, it got picked up by Business Insider, 1,000-person uh, Alexa army. 2018, it's 10,000-plus folks working on Alexa uh, products and indirect, uh, directly, not indirectly. Uh, that is more than Apple, Amazon, Samsung, Google, everybody combined, combined. Now, you can accuse Jeff Bezos of creating the Fire Phone, right? And, 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 and you can maybe find comfort sticking your head in the soil and saying, oh, this is another Fire Phone. I assert that you're insane if you're making that analogy right now. You know, I, I assert you were insane when there were 500 folks, when I went around the Silicon Valley trying to get people to understand that they should be investing in voice-first technology and not VR glasses. But nobody listened. Uh, a lot of those founders of great companies went on to do other things uh, because there was no money, there was no support because nobody wanted that paradigm shift. That was 500 folks, less than 500 actually, but I said it's going to be 1,000 pretty soon. It was 2016. And, uh, and then, of course, now we're at 10,000. At what number of people working on this technology, as a technologist or as a, a VC or as a pundit, do you wake up? At what, at, what, at what number do you sort of chuckle if you're inside of Apple, Google, uh, even Samsung? 
and others and say, man, this is something big. Jeff Bezos is a lot of things, but he does not waste time or money, right? And I'm telling you, this is not just a voice-first device war, if you will. It is truly a revolution. I've used that word since the 80s, and everybody finds it humorous, but it would probably start making a lot more sense in 2019 and 2020, most definitely by 2020. Um, When you start understanding how our interactions with technology is going to change and how what we do with technology is going to change, you realize that 10,000 even in 2018 isn't enough. And if you want to go and do job listings, there are more open job positions for uh, working on voice interfaces at Amazon than all the jobs currently filled at Google working on these devices. That's where it is today. And that's not going to change radically. There is going to be some changes. Uh, We're going to enter a voice first winter. And that winter is what Ahmed and myself talked about. And I think at one of the first of this week's in voice, you guys can be listening, really curious, you can go back. And I've talked about the dead end of where we are and the way we're building apps and the wake words that we need to use and the invocation words and all of this other stuff. Amazon and Apple are going to be facing this in a major way. And unfortunately, maybe Samsung Bixby, not because of Viv, it's because of what I believe is just not moving quickly enough within these companies. It really is going to require radical change. Why? Because all of the skills in the world are not going to save you if you have to have memory to remember how to invoke them. We're not simplifying human culture and our interaction with technology. We're making it more complex. So this is my debate with a lot of voice-first deniers. They're saying, ha, 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 this is the command line. I have to remember words to invoke. I go, yes, you're absolutely right. The first phase of voice revolution is over, and we've seen proof of concept. It is wildly, wildly popular. It's good. I made a prediction I put out today, and I made this last year, 2018. The most uh, sold item is going to be uh, Echo-based items uh, on Amazon, probably doubling the sales. I think much more than Apple. It's called doubling. And um, millions of more people are going to have this device. But if you can't remember how to invoke, you're not going to use a skill. A skill unused is worthless. That means the developer who put the time, effort, and money behind the skill is not going to monetize, and therefore there's going to be a cold winter. That's one cold winter. The other cold winter is the user is going to have a problem with what I call, and I don't want to go down this road actually too far. Let's just say this. Um, you have some of the best minds in the world at these companies. And there's something I called presentment. And I'll just talk about presentment and, well, and versioning. I'll talk versioning and presentment. You know, I've been thinking about this in the 1980s, and it's so easy for me to see. Once you feel the limitations of a system as a user that is not a nerd like myself, you don't go back and probe the limitations of that system. You've established mental boundaries of what that system can do. So if you put out a device in 2016 and the user is used to the device in 2016 and there's no immediate versioning change versioning is 
don't want to get too deeply about this, and there's no presentment of that change, you really don't know its new capabilities. Therefore, you're going to hit a roadblock, and that's coming. It's already here. Um, so I'm going to predict uh, a downward spiral of use of these devices for a certain period of time because of the limitations of the paradigms we're currently using. If you're creating an environment where the user must remember something that's not already in their brain in normal conversation, you've failed as a user interface. It doesn't mean voice first has failed. It means that particular way you presented the voice first interface to the user has failed. So now you have to backtrack from that. And Ahmed and myself, I recall, we're talking about that backtrack is how do you walk away from invocation words and into conversations and dialogues? That's a tough thing. Now, if you knew this was going to happen at one day, what I call the day of reckoning, you would have designed everything differently from day one. There's something you can do today if you're listening to me and you work at these companies. There's something you can do right now. And don't assume you're doing it because if you, if you knew what it was, you'd be doing it right now. Literally, you, there's no day that you would wait. You literally tomorrow morning, you would be doing it. It's that simple. I'm not going to tell you what it is. <laughs> Unless you pay me a lot. Uh, but you would do it. And so don't, don't tell me that you're thinking about this already. You wouldn't be thinking about it. You'd be doing it. Why? Because a day of reckoning is going to be a hard day of reckoning. So we have 10,000 really smart folks working on this uh, there. You have quite a lot of folks working at uh, Google and Apple also. I do not discount them. And incredibly talented folks at Samsung. It is not either or. It is actually going to be all of them. The problem is... What becomes dominant in somebody's life? Well, what did I mean by that? You know, Apple has a theory that since the, the voice-first devices are your phone and it's in your pocket, that's all that matters. And that's what IBM would think uh, when the, the mainframe came out and Steve and Steve were in a garage with a calculator chip. You know, This is the thinking of somebody trying to preserve the past. It's not how the future would happen if a child were to... A child who's using a voice-first system right now. Children are, uh, you know, these, this is a voice generation, right? Uh, and um, you really aren't going to have them reverse that aspect. These children expect to talk to devices and things and expect to talk back to them. It's a predominant interface for a lot of them. And they're very old, they're very young, they're very old. They don't look for apps. They are not using their visual recognition system to get to apps. This is a big story. They're using their voice to open an app. And that means app development and the whole concept of what apps are going to be in the future, meaning the next killer app on an iPhone and Android phone is going to take advantage, advantage of something that I just hinted at. It's a billion dollar company right there if they understand how people are invocating apps alone on devices. So logos are going to mean much less. And again, we're visual creatures. I'm not saying voice only, saying voice first. We are, most of our brain, let's, let's put it this way, from the limbic system on to the neocortex, most of our brain is designed to decode uh, nuances of, of uh, words and interactions. Our intelligent brain, a reactive brain uh, is designed for visual. The visual cortex and the visual systems are designed for us to flee, fight, or stay in place. And a lot of people don't get this. 
it is not really our high order brain. Reading is a, a more relatively new concept. Why? The brain, the three brains, if you will, I'll use a very simple terminology overview and some neuroscientists will bark with me saying he's wrong. That's old thinking. No, it's the right thinking. It's a simplifying. We have three brains coexisting in our head. And then we have the fourth brain, which is external to us. What is that? It's currently our iOS or our Android device. We're already cyborgs to a certain level. We're connected to these things through a system. And I'm not getting sci-fi that we have a neuronal connection. That's not really what I'm talking about. We don't necessarily need one. Uh, well, it's not high throughput. Voice is very high throughput. It's gotten us to where we are today. Anyway, well, let's- our, our, I just got to say this. Our cortex sure. for visual is designed for flee or fight or stay in place, defend. Uh, sometimes it's stay in place in some people's mind it isn't. It's trying to hide. Um, so when we develop the symbology of language, we're using that neuronal passage built in our brain, our hard wiring. And it simulates different parts of the brain. Reading is not a bad thing. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that the brain takes a lot of overhead to convert those symbols into knowledge, uh, into images, because the brain remembers things in images, not in, in, in words. And, and this, is, this is where it gets confusing to people. Well, Brian, if we're images, then it's images what we remember. No, it's images that our brain creates to remember things. Anyway, getting back to the 10,000 folks and all these different people working on it and Amazon. Amazon's in a very unique position because they look through the lens of a merchant. Now, again, some people will say that in a negative way. Oh, they just want to sell you stuff. No, not necessarily. Voice commerce is a much bigger thing than anybody realizes. And a lot of people who got insiders saying it's only 1% of 1% of nobody really using it. I don't know what they got. They got some insider that probably was paid to give out disinformation because that's going to be historically the biggest head fake probably Jeff Bezos has ever created is that voice commerce is not a big thing. It is a big thing. It is the largest thing. And if you're an appliance manufacturer like Samsung, you know it. It's not an accident during the Bixby developer studio um, uh, release that um, I think Adam did the demonstration of building a commerce activity uh, easily inside of these things. Commerce is intimately tied to human endeavors. It's always driven uh, any of the new user interfaces or new paradigms. It drove the internet, you know? So anyway, that's why it's a big deal. And those 10,000 folks aren't just there to try to find fancy ways to sell you something. They're trying to build systems that are going to understand you better. And that's what Amazon's been known for. It's predictive capability. That's what that AI is going to be doing in a conversational and dialogue type of manner. It's going to be interesting to see how they, uh, how they evolve. And I want to touch on a couple of things you just said, and maybe we'll call this our, our story number three, because one of the stories I was actually going to have on the show earlier was that once again, Amazon has been um, requested. I don't know if it's gotten uh, to the uh, legally required stage uh, that it's going to, but uh, requested slash required to provide audio data in a murder case. Indeed. 
And um, here we go again with the privacy conversation. Um, you know, what, how many people on the planet can say with 100% accuracy and knowledge of what the hell an echo is recording <laughs> versus not recording? Well, the, the, the number of people who can probably say that with certainty is probably very few. And it's just, it's, it's interesting because as far as we've come, you know, you talk about a voice first winner, but you talked about it from the standpoint of the hitting a wall on the functionality. You know, I know you agree with this as well, that we're, we're going to have some hills to climb with our societal acceptance of things as well. I think 2018 has shown us that with Google Duplex. Uh, I think that was the number one example. I'm sure you probably have others. But with Google Duplex, we saw very clearly, here is what happens when you unleash something that we weren't expecting as a society. We are going to backlash. And it's not, and it's not okay. And now you're going to spend a lot of time figuring out how to um, walk that back and then reintroduce it in a more palatable fashion, which is what proceeded to happen in the months uh, later. So the question for you, Brian, just uh, to, to put an end cap on, you know, this sort of uh, fantastic discussion, where does privacy fit in right now in your mind? What are some of the things that you've seen play out with privacy versus security with voice first tech? Um, and what do you think we're in for with 2019, given all the stuff we've already talked about? Wow. Yeah. Um, wonderful, wonderful question. And um, could go on days about it, but I'll try to be very concise. Uh, the biggest challenge of this generation, I've been saying for, gosh, in my old Around the Coin shows almost seven years ago, uh, actually before the Around the Coin the biggest challenge of this generation is to deal with what privacy really represents and the social and philosophical uh, playing out of what that is in culture. We're seeing it with what everybody's calling news and fake news, and we're seeing it with all sorts of things. This is all tied with privacy, by the way, because whenever you're, whenever you're erecting somebody with the responsibility to decide for somebody else what is important, what is not important, what is true and what's not true, you're creating a system that will be hacked by forces you cannot even see today. Uh, you, you, you're erecting a higher authority where there should never be a higher authority. And this goes with privacy. Um, a lot of privacy today and in the past would be, I have nothing to hide, therefore I have nothing to worry about. That's not true. Everybody has something to hide and can be extorted. Everybody does. And it's situational and is also the arc of your life. Something you said on January 21st, 2007, could be used against you in 2021. On March 1st, you don't know. And this is a footprint we're leaving behind. I'll leave that and I'll come back to it. Right now, whether people know it or not or like it or not, they're already talking to AI with uh, 
with all of the disfluencies of a normal human conversation, that's the Oz and all the other ticks that people have, and they just don't know it. I know this is a fact. I would say probably about 70% of the people who are listening to us right now have done it and they don't know it. Um, now, here's where it gets really complicated. Some of the call centers in the, in, in, uh, that we interact with are not province of the United States. They're outside this country. They are uh, outside the nexus of law, law, in some cases, of what some of those employees can do with your information. Uh, as it stands today, you may give personal information, banking, social security numbers to somebody who is A, not in this country, nothing wrong with that, a world citizen too, but B, outside the ability to have the same legal constraints. Now, of course, the company can be attacked legally, but between where you are in the United States and where that call winds up outside the United States, there's a whole lot that can happen to that information, including the endpoint human being that this took down your information, right? So this is, let's get to the real meat and potatoes, beginnings of privacy, and there's much more complexity to it. So already for at least the last two decades, you and I have been freely, willingly and unwillingly and wittingly and unwittingly giving very personal information, medical information, financial information to people outside the legal nexus of the United States. Therefore, if it's stolen or used, we don't even know who to sue. You know, a Nigerian prince? I don't know. Uh, but this has been going on for a while. So, my God, somebody just used AI to simulate a human interaction with, uh, uh, with me, and I'm offended. There should be a, a preamble that I am a machine before. Yeah, why? When you have this logical conversation with even very, very, you know, educated people on technology, philosophy, um, sociology, and true, let's go to any, any type of theologies you want to go. It always comes down to, I was fooled. So, it, it Hold it. You know, everybody jokes about, oh, you know, uh, at some point uh, something's going to beat the Turing test or something like that. Turing test is a fallacy. It never was designed to be. And if you don't understand the Turing test is, you know, a series of tests Alan Turing came up with for the, you to be able to figure it out if you're talking to a machine or not. Who cares? I don't care about the Turing test. What I do care about is whether or not I've gotten my life, uh, things, my interaction with technologies uh, make my life simpler. So now what I'm concerned about is not whether or not the technology fooled me, is who is collecting this information and what are they going to do with it? That's the big question they should be ans- asking. Not whether or not somebody called up a hair appointment for me using a, a, a highly disfluent uh, Google uh, assistant or some other startup that actually does it 10 times better. Um, why do people get unleashed? Because we want to believe that somehow when we're interacting with something that is emotive, like a human, that, that it is an actual other human on the other side. The reality is that AI, the AI I've been building for quite a while, is already emotive. Why? It's not to try to fool anybody because humans are emotional creatures. And in the tech world, which is 99% of what's built, who's building all these things, 
are literally divorced of this concept. They don't want to deal with it. A lot of people are, are, are attracted to tech because they don't want to deal with human emotion, to be frank about it. Uh, but humans communicate through emotion. Everything that they remember is tied to a neuropeptide release, which is de facto emotion. So when we're dealing with another system that's designed to have a high throughput interaction with the human being, it needs to have this fluency. It needs to have this feeling that you're actually having a flow of a conversation. Now, you hear about people getting angry that, that their kids or adults are barking commands to uh, their voice-first devices and it's making people less cordial. Do you know why? Very simple. There's no disfluency. There's no emotives that are going back and forth. But that's a lie. It's not emotional. No. Emotions are two things. They're expressions of concepts that have high bandwidth. I can emote something. I don't want to do it here because I'm already taking a lot of time. But go and try it in your own life, you know. And try using different emotive concepts when you're having communication with your significant other because they can determine this much better and you'll see different reactions, you know. Uh, so it's a, it's a high bandwidth communication system, but it also is tied to a neuropeptide release, which we call emotions, which is something we feel in our heart and sometimes in our gut. And I can get into theories on why that's like that, but uh, long story short is that's how humans interact. And this is, becomes a really big challenge for people in tech because I'm in the wet space. It's like, oh, I don't want to go down there. I didn't get into tech. I, I, you know, I want binary. Well, I'm sorry. That's not where tech was ever designed to go. Tech was designed to help humans not to exist for its own being. And to interact with humans, you deal with the wet space. You deal with the emotions. You deal with those um, high bandwidth emotive responses and disfluencies and us and others and all these other things are part of that conversation. So if I were to create a system let's say I have, that is going to have a high bandwidth interaction with the human being, it's going to be emotive. It's going to use Myers-Briggs and other tools that I use that are much more advanced than that. I give Myers-Briggs out there freely. It's much more advanced tools. And I use disfluencies and other techniques to help the conversation interact. And so along the way, there's privacy concerns. Now, you got to separate. I just separated. One is I'm being fooled and I don't want to be a fool. Deal with that. You're going to be fooled and you're already being fooled by AI visually. You can already go out and see images that never will exist and never have existed. Uh, we're going to see people come, quote unquote, back to life and say things they never said and act in ways they never acted. That's a whole other case of worms that society is going to need to deal with and deal with it hopefully rationally. But somebody's going to stand up and there ought to be a law and they shouldn't simulate this person and that person. Well, then what about their DNA? Well, guess what? People are stealing DNA already. And what about cloning something? We can go down this whole thing. We have a lot of stuff to deal with and laws ain't going to fix it. It's going to be a dialogue and discussion. The only way we're going to deal with this. And that includes the privacy issue. The privacy of talking to a machine and then the machine's purpose is to record a, uh, an order at a restaurant or to place a, um, uh, a um, reservation for a nail salon or something like that. Who cares? Is a merchant complaining? No, the merchant just got a sale. In fact, they may have got a sale they didn't get before. And then there are people who have literally uh, handicaps that can't speak. 
are you going to have to have them say this? I mean, it, we go down this slippery slope. So I separate it into two things. The anger is privacy and I'm being fooled and separate those things. Deal with the being fooled and stop wrapping it up. I'm, you know, listen, you, anybody who's listened to me long enough knows that I have mixed reactions to all large tech companies, including Google. You know, I don't know if that's good or bad for me professionally, but I'm going to be honest. And, you know, what duplex is, is actually in many ways a wonderful invention. It's not new. You've been using systems like this forever. It's just, you know, I'll say it. Google has an amazing lack of self-conscious ability to understand when they react, how the world is going to react when they release technology. If they, you know, I would have done it for free. Somebody there say, hey, Brian, we're going to come out with something called duplex. Please don't talk about it. I won't. What do you think is going to happen? I'm going to say, well, if you do it like Google, you're going to get screwed. Don't do it that way. Don't go out and impress the world with it. Go out and actually, well, I'm not going to say what I would, uh, because there's stuff that they can really do right now to fix it themselves. And what Apple can do and all these other companies, there's ways to do this the right way. And none of them have read the room correctly. They did it the wrong way. Um, so nothing utterly wrong with that technology. Something wrong with what you're doing to extract. And I'm not talking about using this for telemarketers. It's already been happening. I don't know if you've ever gotten these calls, Bradley. I'm sure a lot of people listening to me, they have this perky, usually young woman calling them up and saying, hi, how are you today? You know, I'm calling to let you know about your mortgage. Well, a lot of people don't recognize that. That is a board on a screen that somebody's using with about 80 different canned responses as perky person recorded. And it's unfortunately somebody usually in, you know, India or Pakistan or the Philippines who have, you know, accents that are not acceptable and they don't have the same flow that are pressing these commands. And you can, you can confuse them very quickly by saying, hey, what time is it where you are? All of a sudden they hung up. But they have, you know, sort of uh, branched out patterns of what your normal reactions will be. And then they'll, if you have a, a, something that looks like a sale and they don't have the question, oh, let me get my manager, boom. And they're, they're just pressing recordings. It's already happened, folks. That boat has left. Are you talking to automation? Damn straight you are. That person really isn't even in some ways, listening to you. A lot of times it's getting um, real-time uh, speech to text. So they're reading what you're saying back because they can't even maybe understand what you're saying a lot of times because there's a cognization problem with accents even over there. It, it, if it works one way, it sometimes works the other. Anyway, it already happened. That technology is old. Anybody thinking that I'm telling them something new, unfortunately, I'm telling you something that's already over 20 years old, probably more popular over the last 10 years. Uh, Telemark has been using this. So you've been talking to machines long before. You've been talking to machines, press one for the, I mean, it's just ridiculousness. Now the question is, who's on the other side of this machine? What are they doing with your data? Uh, Apple has been pretty articulate in communicating personal data. The voice first revolution that's going to take place after the cold winter uh, is going to be highly, highly contextual, highly personalized data. And I really hope that we have a public dialogue before there ought to be a law and there ought to be regulation before this happens. So I'm hoping that if anybody respects any of my work that works at these large companies, before you go and pull the trigger on this, get your ass out with other companies doing the same thing and build your own 
letter of ethics, um, your declaration of privacy before it's forced upon you. It will happen one way or the other. I've been saying this privately for 10 years. Nobody's listening. I'm saying it publicly a little bit more. I'm saying it very clearly now. There's not a declaration of privacy and ethics out in front as a community very soon we're going to hit a hard wall that is not going to be pretty because the regulation that will come from it. And I'm not saying come up with some lame excuse for a declaration of privacy. I'm saying it's got to be clear who is recording, where is it? And you don't have to dive through menus to get to it. It's got to be right at the top and it's got to be clear about these use cases. The voice first, Bradley, that I'm talking about that ultimately people are going to have is not going to cloudify anything that's personal. That personal data is going to be encrypted and under the control of the user. It's the only way this equation is going to end. And I'm sorry if somebody else has fantasies otherwise. It doesn't mean the cloud is going away. It means that a lot of the AI is so intelligent, even today, to me in my garage lab, that you can do it locally. And you don't need any of this stuff to go to the cloud until the very last minute, and you could do it anonymously, and you could do it in safety, and it's the right thing to do. There are ways you can monetize it, all these other companies that monetize on people's behavior, but there are ways to monetize it with ethics. And if we don't do it now, you don't want to know what it's going to look like, you know? And and, and I got to tell you, nobody's thinking about it, nobody's talking about it, and um you know, my background in this stuff, I want to see this technology help humanity. I don't want to see it hit the wall the way it's going to because of some of these things, and privacy is one of them. So I'm hoping that we get to that point very quickly. Well, we're definitely talking about it. Uh, we'll take a start, you know, start here. And uh, you've been listening to Brian Romley, uh, the architect, the person who coined the term voice first, uh, does a lot of incredibly important work in the field. Brian, what a great opportunity to talk with you, uh, turn on the fire hose of, of knowledge and insight uh, for an hour or so here um, and, uh, and take it in. And we look forward to doing that at the Alexa conference as well, coming up in January in Chattanooga too. That's going to be a great event. Bradley, thank you so much. And I, I, I got to take a, just a, a second here. What you've done for this community is by far probably one of the most historically important things. You've given a voice literally, ironically, uh, to what is really something that a lot of the technical and uh, computer world didn't really want to accept. And it's, it's, it's funny how, you know, fate has worked its way out, uh, that you were there at such an early stage, and now it's becoming abundantly obvious that this is something that not only you have to pay attention to, that you have to actually start realizing is, in fact, the way of things. So I, I commend you and compliment you about the way you've done it. And not only just you, the community that you've built around you of other events and other people that are doing things. I think we have a very cordial and very open community, unlike anything I've ever seen before. And I got to give you a lot of the credit uh, because of the type of person that you are. So I appreciate this opportunity. I appreciate you giving me my long-winded approach. I haven't talked very much this year, and uh, this has been one of my few opportunities to really kind of go into some of the things that I think are not only timely, but really abundantly important for all of, all of us to think about. 
well, you know, you're welcome here anytime. And, uh, and thank you for that. And thank you for everything you're doing. Um, and, uh, I'm excited for 2019. It's going to be a wild ride. So I hope you're, uh, you're buckled up and uh, I'm buckled up and I'm ready. <laughs> I appreciate you, Brian. Thanks Bradley. Thank you so much for this week in voice season three, episode nine. Thank you for listening. And until next time.